When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Good evening and welcome to Wrestling Rewind. I am your host, Angel Amoroso, and I am joined by my co-host, the Iron Man, Tommy Cairo. Tommy? What's up? How are you? And this evening on Wrestling Rewind, we uh, were getting into a book reading for Wrestling Archives. Yes. Uh, Tommy, would you like to tell us about the book that we're getting into? We're using tonight the Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame, The Canadians. I picked this because uh, originally to be a present, my whole family's hooked up to eat to um, Crowbar Press. So every holiday, whatever, I pick a book, I get a book. So I picked this because of the crossover of all the states that border Canada, into Canada, back and forth. Guys that made their careers that were Americans, that made their careers mostly in Canada, and it's all kinds of back and forth. So I thought it would cover quite a few guys that I already knew, and then a bunch that I didn't know. So we'll, okay. we'll start with the very um, maniacal Mad Dog Vachon. Oh, nice. Yep, classic heel. Bravo. During his farewell tour of Quebec in 1986, Maurice Mad Dog Vachon made the remarkable transformation from despised wrestler to beloved popular icon. Just as he was hanging up his boots for the last time, doors were finally opening for him. Interviews both in print and on the air praised his contribution to society. He was hired to hawk beer and chocolate bars. He wrote his autobiography, made a rap album in French, and most bizarrely, the veteran of more than 16,000 bouts over 40 years. Wow. That's a lot of wrestling. (laughs) Yes. Was tapped to be a restaurant reviewer. Oh. Okay. It's a man of many hats. Yes. Did I show you this? No, I showed you the cover only. So this is Maurice at his young age fit. Look, I mean, the guy's like, he looks like he's 6'3". I know he he wasn't that. Beefy. Yeah. Big, beefy, thick dude. Yeah. Yeah. Farmer. Probably took care of the cows. Right. Right. Uh, the words Canadian icon have rarely suited a better man. The love that the public had for Vachon became even more apparent a year after his retirement when he was struck by a car while walking with his third wife, Kathy, in Des Moines, Iowa. Vachon had his right leg amputated below the knee. Wow. Story was carried by media across Canada, and he was flooded with letters from well-wishers. Terrible. Yeah. The tale of Maurice Bichon would be amazing enough without his accession into mainstream culture. Born in Villa Armand 
a working class neighborhood in Montreal in 1929. Bouchon was the second of 13 children. His father was a strong man who worked for the local police force. Teased about his name, Bouchon La Le Cochon. Maurice got into many scraps as a youth. At 12, his father started him training in amateur wrestling at the Montreal YMCA. That's where you had to go back then. Schools didn't have it. Sure, sure. Uh, Maurice dropped out of school at 13 to work various jobs and pursue his last athletic endeavors. Encouraged by his father, Maurice took to wrestling quickly and made the Canadian Olympic team for the 1948 London Games. When you walk into the stadium at Wembley in London, there's probably 6,000 athletes there. King George VI is there, the Queen, and they play our national anthem. It gives you goose pimples, Michon said. The Montreal competed at 174 pounds and finished in seventh place, eliminated, eliminated in the third round uh, by Joe Scarpello at the Games. Uh, underrated by his Olympic defeat, undeterred by his Olympic defeat, Michon rebounded in 1950 to claim gold at the British Empire Games, the forerunner of the Commonwealth Games. In New Zealand, when you wrestle professional, the money goes in your pocket, Bashan said. When you wrestle amateur, the medals, they go in your heart. It's a nice way to say it. Yeah. Uh, gr growing up, Bashan had always been a fan of the pro game. And upon his return to Canada, he wrestled a bit around Montreal before heading to northern Ontario for the Kazabaskis, which was a summer territory. The five foot eight, 240 pound Bashan was a hit, and other opportunities. Soon came along. Now, would you look at that picture we showed before? Could you look? He looks like he's six foot one. Yeah. So had to be pretty, you know, he's lean. I guess. You know, not lean, but not heavy. Right, right. Usually that appearance. Stocky. You know, the, older you get, the heavier you get, the shorter you look. Right, right. <laughs> Probably look like four at the end. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm sawed off and hammered down. Six inches right. less. <laughs> exactly. Mad Dog had an, had an instant reputation when he started wrestling professionally because he had been a bouncer in a Montreal nightclub. He never lost a street fight. He loved to fight, said his brother Paul. Rashawn was in Hawaii when he first met Portland promoter Don Owens, who invited him to come to his territory. Rashawn attacked his opponents, the referee, and a ringside police officer before the bell in his Pacific Northwest debut and was disqualified, fined, and suspended. Yeah. Good for him. There you go. That's a way to start. Yeah. Owen told him then that he looked like a mad dog and the nickname stuck, as did Owen's decision to bill Vachon as hailing from Algeria. Hmm. For the next 30 years, Mad Dog carved out a reputation for himself around the globe. With his shaved head and clipped mustache and beard, Vachon would drape himself in chains while growling through his interviews. As time wore on, his and his larnage took more and more of a beating. His voice became better suited to his character. Can oh. you imagine? That's crazy. Raspy. Killer, yes, I mean, you know, he, he turned yeah. it into a, what it needed to be. Right. According to Killer Kowalski, Rashawn would carry that character with him outside the rent. One time we went to a bar outside Minneapolis. Someone gave him a little flack and he beat the crap out of the guy. Took a jar or something like that and hit the guy over the head with it. He, he said, he said with a laugh. 
Rashawn's biggest successes by far came in the AWA out of Minneapolis, where he was well-matched against Vern Gagne and in Montreal, where he ran the Grand Prix wrestling promotion in the 1970s, partnering with his brother, Paul Brothers. Oh, no. Brother Paul, Yvonne Robert Jr., and others. He was also extremely well-known for tag teams. One with his brother, Paul the Butcher, and together they held the AWA tag AWA tag titles for a long time. But it's your Rashawn. Yeah. He was heavier and bigger. Yeah. And nowhere near the mean guy that his brother was. Mm-hmm. The other was his team teaming with Baron Von Raschke, the partnership that had its heyday in Montreal. Baron Von Raschke was one of my best partners in wrestling. We were very successful together. Not to diminish the prestige of my brother Paul the Butcher when we were teamed together. As far as I am concerned, the Mad Dog and Baron Von Rescue were the oddest and most explosive tag team in wrestling history. Wow. Wrestling, wrestling solo, Rashawn had epic feuds with the likes of Ganya, Kowalski, Wild Bill Curry, and faced all the top talent from his era. In Montreal, the Rashans were never feuding with the Rougeaus, were forever feuding with the Rougeaus and the Ladukes. Over oh. the last number of years, Vishon has continued to put in occasional appearances with various promotions, including a memorable ringside seat at a WWF pay-per-view event where his prosthesis was used as a weapon in the match. He lives in Omaha, Nebraska with his wife, Kathy, and manages to travel to Hawaii every year for a vacation. Give credit where credit is due. Mad Dog knows how to be the Mad Dog and lives it every day. Continuing to die is... This is great. Beginning to dye his mustache and beard black. Loosely yeah. translated, the title of Vishan's 88 autobiography, Un Vida Shane Dans Un Monde Focus, means the life of a dog in a world of crazies. <laughs> okay. The original. So, yeah. Uh, he has also been the subject of an hour long documentary on the Comedy Network called Wrestling with the Past, where he told stories and hammered for the camera. According to the series director, John Dolan, Mad Dog's magic has never left. When he gets into a character and starts growling, it's hysterical and it's still powerful. He is a strong, strong man still and brings crazy energy at his age. I bet. Yeah. I mean, that was one of the, you know, if you watched him, it's like, uh, you know, like you had never sure what entertainment quality. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, without the crazy guys, you wouldn't be nothing to be worried about. Right. Mm -hmm. One man riot squads. All right. Awesome stuff. Let's see where we're going to go to next. Next. Uh, Let's see. Page 24. It comes from a long line. Long family line. Yeah. Really long. Yeah. The Rougeaus, the French, and the French Canadians. They're Mm. all, they all wrestled. There's like seven or eight. Right. It's crazy. Right. All right. Now we got a really. Old school guy, Gene Kaniski. Oh, there we go. He was world. He was world NWA world champion before whoever had it before Flair. I'm, I'm a little rusty. I have to look that up. But I'm looking at the ring in this picture, and it's like you can see the wood on it. You see it? Yes. Like, that's wood. It's all have wow. wooden rings. Yeah. God knows what that felt like. Yeah. All right. So. That was him under the ring. It says, an enraged Gene Kaniski under the ring, hiding from Whipper Watson at Maple Leaf Gardens in 1957. 
Yeah, you weren't going to get away with the, an easy night with a guy like Whipper Watson. Mm. All right, here we go. Gene Kaniski. Stamina is a word that describes Gene Kaniski perfectly. Whether it was a 90-minute championship match or a spirited rant on the microphone. Big Thunder never lacked for energy or self-confidence, making his claim that he was Canada's greatest athlete all the more credible. And we know who took that after a while. Mike yeah. Sharp. Right, all right. Yep, he stole it. Canada's greatest athlete, all the more credible because of who he really was. Even today, Kaniski is still big on making bold declarations. Hey, I was always in great shape. I was never out of shape. Hell, I'm 73 years old and I still work out five days a week, And said Kaniski. If if my knees were good, I honestly really think I could still wrestle. Christ, it would be good to work out with the Olympic team. The secret to Gene Kaniski's success was that he couldn't back up. He could back up his constant boasting and bragging. Too often, people refer to him as a football player turned wrestler. But Kaniski got into grappling in his teens at Edmonton's YMCA and got addicted to it. It didn't hurt that he was 195 pounds at age 15. Kaniski was a champion. Yeah, he was a big guy. Yeah. You know, they didn't have all the supplements and all the. You know, the best yeah, you're talking about a 15 year old that was almost 200 yeah. pounds, you know, just shy of 200 pounds. That's not easy to, you know, yeah, of course, you got gross burst, but you know, it was 15 years old, is 200 yeah. pounds. Yeah, I would say, added in the dairy, <laughs> work on a dairy farm. That they ate, yeah, eggs, they drank milk, they big ate good milk. old boys, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. no steroids. Right. Okay. Where was it? Um, yeah. He says the secret to Gene Kennedy's success was that he could back up the, his constant boasting and bragging. Uh, Edmund, he worked at Edmonds' YMCA and got addicted to it. It didn't hurt that he was 195 at age 15. Kennedy was a champion amateur wrestler, both in Alberta as a youth and later at Arizona University. Football was a sideline for him, and he elected to play in his hometown of Edmonton rather than for the Los Angeles Rams, simply because there was more money. Wow. We made it home. His parents, Nick and Julia Kaniski, were well-known in the community. Julia served as a city councilor for years and was involved in the CCF political party. Kaniski wow. played football for only 40 years, only four years, before he was forced to retire from the game in 1953 because of a knee injury. He started wrestling professionally in Tucson, Arizona, for Rod Fenton. Kaniski had already met many pro wrestlers over the years. When I was still in, at the University of Arizona, I used to work out with the pros like Tony Morelli and Dory Funk Sr., he said. Mm-hmm. Kaniski dim- dismisses the common asser- assertion that Stu Hart trained him. That's a fallacy, he spat, saying that he wrestled with Hart at the YMCA a few times, but that was it. The transition to pro was relatively smooth, and Kaniski absorbed all the knowledge he could in and out of the ring. In my early career, I'd get in the ring with a guy like Lou Fez. He could look at you and hurt you. He just had so many moves. Just going along, you learn as you progress. It's just like a carpenter having a lot of tools. What good is it if you don't know how to use them? So you just train to, you just try to perfect certain holes and moves that suited your style. Kaniski's style might be described as a two, six foot five, 275 pound freight train barreling down the tracks, knocking mm-hmm. obstacle after obstacle out of the way with a loud growl. And he had that like high and tight 
you know, haircut. You look like a Marine, you know. Right, right. Very intimidating. Uh, yeah. Uh, Lord Bleers, Lord James Bleers, often tagged with Kaniski in the 1950s in California and recalled the hatred he elicited. He was a big, rugged bastard. He'd go plowing into 50 people. We were attacked every night in California. Nice. That's, that's unbelievable. Gene and I would, uh, I'm not kidding you, he had, we had to fight our way out of the ring. We couldn't get out. The fans wanted to kill us. Kaniski's ring accomplishments could fill an entire chapter. Kaniski held titles everywhere he went and became a true wrestling superstar. Though best known for his three-year NWA world title reign from 66 to 69, many forget that he also held the AWA world title in 61 and the WWA world title in 65. He is still revered in Japan today and goes on a tour there at least once a year. Both wow. of Kaniski's sons, yep. Nick, and I know Kelly. I've, I've seen Kelly Kaniski. I, mm. I don't know if I've seen Nick. That's one of two of his sons. Became pro wrestlers for a short period as well, but not before they were well-grounded in their fundamentals of amateur wrestling like their dad had been. They wrestled all their lives. Nick wrestled at Simon Fraser. Kelly went to West Texas State. According to Nick, the amateur background helped get him out of many in-ring jams caused by his father, caused by his father. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I'd get in the ring and guys would try to wrestle with me. Your father used to do this to me and try to rub my face in the mat or something. Nick would with a laugh. I just had such an extensive background in wrestling, wrestling against world champions, Olympic champions, that they're not going to do much with me. Big Thunder Kaniski was a natural self-promoter. Comfortable on the air under any circumstances. He loved politics and would read the local newspapers in the towns he visited to learn what was going on and what buttons to push with the crowd. He was a quote machine. Kaniski still has people asking him to sign off, to say, say his sign off catchphrase, made popular during his years and visit years in the Vancouver All Star Wrestling promotion, which he co owned. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank my fellow Canadians and American viewing audience for allowing me into their TV. And as usual, Ron, you did a superb job, he would say, as host Ron Morier struggled to get a word in edgewise. That's pretty cool. So he knew he knew what to do. Um, right. Yeah, uh, the cauliflower ears, the cropped hair, that big, that strong. You know, he hits you just hurt. He hurts you just with his elbow. You know, they all had a different look back then, and they were a different kind of strong. You know, like yeah. a natural strong without yeah. the steroids or anything right. like that, and just like yeah. you know, powerful guys, and would you know do things to you that you know to cause cauliflower ear and, and yeah. literally cripple you sometimes. Hookers yeah. and well, what rubbing in the you Well, when you see an amateur that has cauliflower ears or like a kid in college he's getting it somewhere beside the rest the so that means he's out somewhere doing you know the, the, whatever they call them got all kinds of names sports fest this that right exactly know, and, and that's yeah. why his ears are like that uh-huh all right we got a big one next time this one roddy piper all right okay early heavy heavy gig there awesome. i imagine that's you ready? Yes, absolutely. Okay. All right, here we go. Over the years in countless interviews, media skits, and websites, Roddy Piper's story has been told again and again. 
and it's been different every time. He's loud, outspoken, funny, and sometimes totally off the wall. Perhaps that's what makes him such a fascinating figure. And the reason that he has hated, he's been hated in love as one of the greatest wrestlers of the last 25 years. The basic facts aren't hard to come by. He was born Roderick Toombs in Saskatoon in November 1956. His father worked for the Canadian National Railway as a police officer, and they moved to many different outposts over the years. The, I don't know what this means, the PAS, P-A-S, for his first year at school. I don't know. Then Dauphin, Port Arthur, Dawson Creek, Winnipeg, Montreal, Toronto, not to mention Glasgow, Scotland, and Melbourne, Australia. We moved all the time. I was always the new kid on the block. I was always getting beaten up, said Piper. Yeah. Young Roddy and his father clashed, and he was out on his own at 13. Oh. Or was it 12? The numbers never agreed. Among the places he lived as a street kid was Toronto. In 1972, Roddy drifted into the life of Tony Condello. I don't know. Do you know who Tony Condello is? He would take these guys on this death tour. They would call it up through all the like um, uh, Indian reservations. Like brutal, brutal. You know. What years was this? This was um, like the early seventies. We will do that for an episode because it's yes, absolutely. I want to know more about that. Yep. There's there's actually a a documentary on it, but I'll get to. I'll see what they have in print. Yeah, we we will get to that. It's good. Um, Let's see. Uh, So when he met Tony Condello who was just starting up a wrestling school in Winnipeg, he was 17 years old. He must have been a giant now. Wow. The kid, this kid approached me and said he wanted to be a wrestler. I taught him. I gave him that name and that gimmick that he holds, Condello said. He was with me until 74, 75 at release. His first match was June 5th, 1973. Piper recalled that first match was pretty short and that he was soundly defeated by the axe, Larry Henning. That's mm-hmm. Kurt's dad, who yes. outweighed him by 150 pounds. The Piper surname came about because the ring announcer couldn't remember his actual last name, and Roddy was playing the bagpipes on his way to the ring, a skill he had been practicing since age five. That's cool. Yeah, yeah, really cool. Roddy Piper, just man, just the best and everything. Ahead of his time, you know. Promos and like, you know, and then then he went into acting after wrestling, which was just even more incredible. Yeah, look at him there. The kid. Young, young buck there. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, always great at, at like in every area yeah. of, of wrestling. So I, I just did I used to get a little worried when he was doing some of his uh promos because I think he was going off the tracks there a couple times. Right, right. It looked like he was going to blow a gasket a few yeah. times. But, you know, he, he knew how to put it on a show, boy. He was. Um, yeah. Let's see. Oh, here's, here's, this is what makes him is his mouth, you know. Uh, of so, course. Yeah. During the, the at least part of his two years in Winnipeg, Piper said he actually lived in Al Tomko's house. He made me paint all the weights. So what I did was take a 45-pound weight and paint 30 pounds and messed up, messed all the weights around. Great entertainment there for myself. So now the guy thinks he's getting weak. He's like, what the hell? That's great. great. Uh, Some of what was to make Piper a big star was already in evidence in Winnipeg, Condello said. I knew he had a lot of potential. I knew he was pretty good yapping. I figured out one of these days this kid will hit. 
He had something about him that nobody else in the club had. Of course, I never knew he was going to be such a big star. Mm. He took his act on the road to Kansas City, Portland, Texas, eventually to Southern California. In 75, where Gene and Mike Lavelle turned him into a superstar who dominated the territory, winning both singles and tag titles. I remember that as it was happening, I'd go to my neighbor's house who had UHF. He had to go to 13U and then get another dial and go to 47, you know, all Spanish commercials. And, but we didn't but it, right? Yeah. Um, he went, uh, he worked for Gene and Mike, turned him into a superstar who dominated the territory, winning both singles and tag titles. Piper had too many men mentors to credit. When I got into wrestling, I went from having nothing a hunt to having a hundred fathers, he said. These guys taught me the ways of life, brought me up. As a young rookie on the totem pole, Piper had to do what he was told. I owe my whole career to everybody but myself, he said. The structure by which I was taught, you need to keep your mouth shut at all times, write nothing down, keep, keep everything in your head, shut your mouth, and give it your all at all times. He had some issues. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one, one story concerning a match with Mad Dog, we just read about, because Sean illustrates his point. I'm wrestling Mad Dog. I'm on the floor, and he picks up the stairs as you, that you used to climb in the ring, and he throws them down on my head. Oh. He hit me on the jaw and just went, kaboom. I know, don't give up. I've been taught, just go back in there. But Sean came looking for Roddy in the dressing room. Here comes Mad Dog. You come so <laughs> I, I, I didn't know that you, I didn't know that was a nice name for me. He said, you, you travel with me. And the reason was that I didn't quit. So I guess you want to school them on the road now, you know? Mm. Um, now I remember seeing uh, was, uh, some, a friend of ours, I'll tell you later, it was get hit in the head with a heavy set of stairs that Taz dropped on his, no, it was a stool. The stool was like 90 pounds. When I tell you, dropped it right on his head. Ugh. Yep. Sometimes people just don't think before they do stuff. They just pick yeah. stuff up laying around. Yeah. You, you know, you get carried yeah. away. The adrenaline's pumping. You know, yeah. so sometimes it's a, it's just purely a mistake. Got to think of it that way. Hopefully, you go. Oh, it's a work. You know, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. No, I can see it. You know, it, it could happen. Um, blah, blah, blah. Uh, the reason I, he didn't quit, so he wanted to teach the kid. After a stint in Portland, had a first go at the WWF in 79, but was deemed too small at six foot two, 235 pounds to be a star in the big man's territory. Mm. So he hooked wow. up with Georgia Championship Wrestling, which, which was just beginning to be noticed on Ted Turner's DBS Superstation. Both there and subsequently in Charlotte, when the promotion emerged, merged with Jim Crockett promotions, Piper was a superstar. He could talk and talk and talk. Whether it was a color commentator beside Gordon Soley or beside Gordon Soley or cutting a promo for a feud, most importantly, he could back up his words in the ring. That ability to rile a crowd with words and actions would shoot Piper straight to superstar in the WWF in 1984. Wow, that's a long time ago. Yeah. He arrived just as the wave broke, sending pro wrestling into mainstream consciousness. In fact, by booting Cindy Lauper, setting up the first WrestleMania, 
Piper wasn't just there. He kickstarted the rock and roll, rock and wrestling connection. WrestleMania was basically an accident. The war to settle the score was a big one, he explained. At war, which aired on MTV, a lot of stuff happened that wasn't going to happen, like the New York City police jumping into the ring. And uh-huh. also, I got to tussle with them. Wow. Next thing I know, I see something blonde coming out. And I turned and kicked. You can see it. I tried to pull, pull the kick. Field goal, Cindy Lauper. Oh, and it exploded. I don't know exactly what he's talking about. Oh. Cindy Lauper was there. But that maybe he kicked her in the head. Maybe. But that yeah, it sounds New like. York, yeah, that bad New York accent. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. All right. So Piper was on top in the WWF until his retirement match against adorable Adrian Adonis at the third WrestleMania at the Pontiac Silverdome. But he would return on many other occasions, including a run with the Intercontinental Belt, his only WWF title. The main reason Piper took off, took time off from wrestling, was to start an acting career. Best known for his starring role in John Carpenter's *They Live*, Piper has done numerous other flicks, including *Jungle Ground*, *No Contest*, *Marked Man*, and *Hell Comes to Frogtown*. So One of the more popular ones. Yeah. In 1996. It's good Piper, stuff. Good stuff. Yeah. I remember watching uh, They Live. I remember that. Yeah. Um, in 1996, Piper was signed by World Championship Wrestling and quickly resumed his legendary legendary feud with Hulk Hogan. With their roles now reversed, the baby-faced Piper was unable to wrest the WCW World Belt from the heel Hogan, though he came very close on many occasions. Since disappearing from the WW, WCW scene, Piper has acted in various roles written his autobiography, and worked on various business ventures, including a stand by promoting small shows. He lives in Oregon with Kitty, his wife of more than 20 years, and their six children. How long ago did he die? Uh, it's been quite a while now. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, well, half the time, we should decade, I, I guess. you got to stop and think if they're alive or not. Right, alive. yeah. Is he alive? I don't know. It's, it's terrible. Yeah, it's just so many people are passing so quickly. It's yeah. like you can't keep track. Nope. Of even how long. You want to do another so, one? Was uh yeah, yeah, let's let's get into uh one more if we have a chance. Yeah. Um I'll I'll tell you what. We can do John and Chris Tolis, Stomper, Archie Gouldy, or Stu Hart. Stu Hart. Let's get yeah, into Stu Hart. Yeah. Right. That's what he said when when Dy- when they brought Dynamite back. He's a skinny bastard. Yes. <laughs> He was. <laughs> you know, hey, but I'll tell you, those other hearts that couldn't wrestle worth a lick, they had other attributes because whoever it was that saw him was Bruce or Keith or whatever could see what plus all this inside, anything, yeah. Anything he did earlier in England, you know, just by that you'd have to hire him. Right. But he probably was 150 pounds, you know. Good they um, had people with vision and not just yeah. like, you know. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you know, that's not him. It's too hard. 44. Oh, 44. Page oh. 44. See, we're using a book. This is a book, young people. Yes. It's book. not not the stuff. internet. It's not Google. It's not, not Wikipedia. <laughs> Although we don't knock that system. No. You but know. We're taking it it's back. always nice to have it's an actual card back in your hand. Yeah. We're mm. taking everything back. Yes. We're using books now. Yes. Okay. <laughs> 
Stu Hart. The Rewind good. to Books. Yeah. Oh, Stu Hart. Look at that young man. Pretty good looking guy, right? Yeah. And not on, huge. They lived on the Canadian prairie in the snow, these people. I mean, right. All right. Stu Hart. At this point, the story of Stu Hart has grown beyond fact and entered the land of myth. No man could possibly have done so much for wrestling and his city. No man could possibly have inflicted so much pain. Oh. <laughs> no man could possibly have had a hand in training so many superstars. No man could possibly have suffered so much publicly. Yes, Stu Hart has experienced it and more. And in 2001, he was finally recognized for it by his peers with the Iron Mike Mazurki Award, the Cauliflower Alley Club's highest honor, and by his country with his appointment to the Order of Canada. Gonna take a little swig. Nice. And he definitely deserves it, like a, a lot more than a lot of people who have gotten inducted into the Kali Fettler Club. Yeah, all kids. And whatever they do. Yep. Yeah, people that we don't even know. Yep. But go on. I'm sorry. Um, yes, Stu Hart has experienced it in more. In 2001, he said, uh, Alley's highest honor, and by his country, the appointment to the Order of Canada. Stuart Edward Hart's story comes out of the depths of the depression in rural Alberta. Living in poverty gave him a determination to succeed in life, and he chose to start amateur wrestling in Edmonton, Edmonton in 1930. Athletics was a way out for him, and he succeeded in baseball and football too, playing for the Edmonton Eskimos. What's it like playing out there on the field outside? Yeah, right. I guess he was at the Y too, part of the yeah. Y wrestling team. Oh yeah. yeah. They all were. That's, that was the only place you could go, you know? Sure. Yeah, you Stu gotta do where you can get it. Yeah. Stu Hart loves to tell stories of his early days learning the skills of submission wrestling. I went through three or four years of being a guinea pig. My dog's trying to get in. That's okay. <laughs> anyway, yeah, who are we trying to prove? At least we unraveled the mystery of the sound, but we really don't need to know that. A little scratching is, you know, yeah. for sound effect. And we don't have to pay for it. It's not a copyrighted right. sound. Exactly. We'll leave it it's in there. Form. It's good. Keep it's it going. <laughs> Scratch some more, doggy. Yeah. <laughs> Go on, uh, Tommy. Okay. He went through three or four years of being a guinea pig where the, where the good wrestlers would grab me, shove my head between my knees, and pull my knees over my head and knock me out. Oh. Suffocating you, uh, if they could, and rub my elbows together behind my head. Oh. Sometimes my forehead was down, touching my belly button, and make my neck three feet longer than it was. Why didn't they just give him Indian burns and like slap his stomach? Like this is like bully, like like elementary school bullies. It sounds like. But when we train our soldiers, we train them as hard as possible. Because you, they're probably going to get into something much worse. Oh, so, absolutely. I, I agree. But... Well, that's why they didn't uh, smarten up the Green Boys in Japan until they were ready to make their debut. And they tortured them daily. Horrible. Yeah. That's sure. what this was like. Mm-hmm. Sometimes my forehead was down, touching my belly button and making my neck three feet lower than it was. And see how many times I could get twisted around. Finally, after three or four years, the world started turning. And I was directing traffic a little bit. Finally, I got to the point where the boys who used to use me as practice dummy, I was using them. Nice. That's nice. When World War II broke out, Hart enlisted in the Navy. 
He was used to entertain the troops with wrestling exhibitions against the likes of Sandor Kovacs and Al Corbin. Hart was always in tremendous shape. In 1946, he walked into a restaurant in New York City. There was a big guy sitting there with cauliflower ears. I went by him and looked up. you got a big neck on you, kid. The guy was local promoter Toots Mon. Oh. And he was an all-time wrestler before he was a promoter. I thought yeah. maybe you'd wrestle with that neck on you. I'd like you to come to work for me. I told him I couldn't right now. I had to go back to the service. He gave me his card, then he told me to get through the Navy, come down, and join him. When the war ended, Hart headed back to New York and started his pro career. In New York. Wow. Pro, Stu Hart was rough and tough, as was expected from Prairie Stock. He, but he was also an attractive young man who caught the eye of many, a female fan, including his wife, Helen Smith, who he met and married in New York City. Angelo Zavoldi fought Stu Hart many, many times around the American Northeast. He was a good, good wrestler, Zavoldi said. He was good right from the beginning. I think he was just born a wrestler. You know, and that has a lot to do with stuff, too. You know, yep. he's got to be something to genetics because how does it, like, look at the Samoans. Look, they can't there, all not. There's so many wrestling families, too. Yeah. And then there's uh, offsprings of cousins and yeah. nephews and grand. And we'll get into that in, in a yeah. later episode. And there's always actually. one or two who don't make it. But usually yeah. most of them do. Most but a lot do. A lot yeah. do. Yeah. Amazing um, wrestling families. Yeah. Hart wasn't a top competitor in the wrestling ranks in New York, so he headed best west to improve his standing. In the Dakotas, he really started to learn behind the scenes of wrestling, and in 1948, began promoting matches in Edmonton. The promotion was initially called Big Time Wrestling, then Wildcat Wrestling, and when Calgary became the base, base Stampede Wrestling. Hart would wrestle on a regular basis until the 60s, and later, when needed, he would still don the tights. Wow. Yeah, what a, what a story. Very um, admirable. What we'll do is I got, when I get find my stash of books, I got Bret Hart's book, and oh, that's nice. like like this, and it talks about how they lived. They went to school without like with sneakers in the six foot of snow, and t shirts. Like they didn't. Yeah, I, I've I've heard. High, then they were down here. You know? Right, I've heard stories about the Hearts, and you know, you'd think they they had an easy life, but they really didn't. And there were so many of them, so you know, they they they. they had it pretty hard. Yeah, uh, and what he would do is, when good things were good, he'd buy a bunch of Cadillacs, and then you know he, he couldn't he, he couldn't even run them. And then they sort of tens and twenties of like Cadillacs on his property. Yeah, right. There, there could be entire stories just yeah. sitting here talking about yeah. Stuart. See, but these uh, are the kind so, of men that 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 were the foundation. What we can't you can't accept less, and that's why the business has changed. And if you came, if you came from the dungeon, if you came from Stu Hart, then that meant that you were probably one of oh, the, the better wrestlers out there. Yeah. So a, another school that was like at the top of the list when you know you had to come from you know some some kind of one of the top twenty schools that were yeah. around at the time, and and Stu Hart be, being one of them. Uh, I, I don't think wrestlers. I. I don't know if I go there. <laughs> yeah, that that's that's a that's a bit of a hike. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, yeah, I might have wanted to do it when I was younger, but like sitting here now, like, well, right, yeah, right now it might yeah. be troublesome. <laughs> but this was great. I, I I love to to learn about uh you know the, the these gentlemen 
and uh, especially ending with that was really nice uh, with Stu Hart. So uh, this was a very interesting episode, book reading of Wrestling Archives, and I hope that you'll join us back next week on Wrestling Rewind. We are here every Sunday evening at 7 p.m. on Monty and the Pharaohs YouTube. So we hope that you'll join us back next week and every week following uh, with our rewind and archives and all the information that we can provide you with to make you an educated and informed professional wrestling fan. Uh, so Don't for, embarrass us. Don't embarrass no, us. not at all. For myself, uh, Angel Amoroso, and my co-host, the Iron Man, Tommy Cairo. Until next time, have a nice night and a nice life. Good night. <laughs>